Good Sunday morning. I'm Jaden Jefferson and welcome to this week's Community Focus. We are coming off of August special election and joining me right now is Dr. Melissa Miller, Professor of Political Science at BGSU. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jaden. So let's just first start with what happened on Tuesday. So I guess to, in music terms, this was a flop. So why exactly did issue one flop? So it really became an up or down vote on reproductive rights, a proxy, if you will. But what was initial glance, sort of a very technical, almost arcane um, ballot measure that had to do with the threshold to pass a statewide constitutional amendment um, was really messaged on the no side to be about reproductive rights. And I think that drove a lot of turnout. And at the same time, information started to come out that um, the proponents of issue one, those who did want to raise that threshold to 60% to pass a statewide ballot initiative, um, were doing this strategically and saying so in sort of like internal memos and and remarks to supporters that it was about reproductive rights. And so I think that really got voters' attention. And that's what really drove turnout. This was a far cry from sort of a sleepy summer special election that one would have thought would get low turnout. Once it became about abortion, turnout really surged. And there was also an incredible amount of money, almost $20 million that poured into um, the campaigns. That's for both sides. And particularly um, the yes side really did a big media push in the final days. So there was a lot of focused attention that drove turnout and issue one went down. It did not pass. 57%, according to the unofficial results, um, did oppose it. And so the threshold to pass a constitutional amendment using the statewide ballot initiative remains 50% plus one. I noticed that the yes side in their messaging, it was quite miscellaneous. Sometimes the topic of transgender rights was covered. We also saw parental rights were covered. So do you think that it all impacted the results and resulted in issue one failing? Well, I think issue one failed for a host of reasons. I think that um, the no side was out there way ahead in part because they just spent a lot more money up front. So they really had set the narrative by the time that the yes side um, did a big ad campaign in the final days and try to kind of shift the focus a little bit and um, were sort of more open about the fact that raising the threshold was important in order to prevent reproductive rights um, from passing in November. And it was at that point that they brought up parental rights for minors to have abortions, this issue of parental rights over transition care for transgender youth. That was kind of brought in in the final days. Um, it wasn't enough. Um, and we saw that from the results of the vote. But I would expect that um, pro-life um, forces, pro-life proponents who will be opposing that November ballot issue will continue to to make those arguments, I believe, um, and try to extend. I mean, honestly, I think the pro-life and pro-choice positions are so locked in. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's easy to find somebody out there that when asked, do they consider themselves pro-life or pro-choice, would say something like, oh, I'm not really sure, right? I mean, this is really a hot button cultural issue. So I expect to see um, that 
proponents of the reproductive rights measure in November are likely to say, look, this is about more than abortion. This also protects access to contraception, um, which is part of that ballot language. And I would expect opponents of the November measure to bring in the parental rights, um, the question about whether parents um, will be able and and required to consent um, to a minor having abortion or getting transition care if they um, are transgender. So I think the battle has been sort of set. And I think um, that the um, the proponents of reproductive rights, one round one, we'll see what happens in round two. Kind of talk about that. Why was there such pushback against this, even from people on the right? So issue one didn't map perfectly onto the sort of partisan spectrum, right? So not all opponents of issue one were Democrats and not all supporters were Republicans. And I think that's because, yes, it was linked and intertwined with abortion rights, and that was made very clear by the opponents of issue one. Somewhat less clear, but it came out in the final days that that uh, the supporters of issue one um, saw it as a means to prevent reproductive rights from being codified in November. Um, but it also was about this issue of you know, simply what percentage should be required to pass a constitutional amendment on a statewide ballot. And that gets at people's sense of what is small D democratic and what is that in Ohio? What's it been like? Um, what's been the history there? And so I, I think that overlaid and intertwined with the reproductive rights issue was an argument that it seems as if because they won um, the no side made pretty effectively with that use of the one person, one vote slogan. Like I said, that was, you know, a pretty uncontroversial, not partisan sort of slogan um, that's been around for generations. It's in, you know, primary school and secondary school, um, higher ed textbooks, right, on American government. And so I think um, the no side used that effectively. Um, and and perhaps that's um, part of the reason. Now, another reason is just simply we're kind of in new territory because this is the post-Row world. So after the Dobbs decision was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court and suddenly abortion rights were no longer guaranteed at the federal level and states could decide we're kind of in this new territory. And states like Ohio and voters in Ohio um, are, are suddenly confronted with this possibility in Ohio of having a voice about whether um, that right that had been around since the early 1970s for all women may be restored in November. Now, what can we learn from other states? Well, the six states that have had a reproductive rights measure on the ballot since the overturning of Roe versus Wade have all uh, passed in terms of protecting reproductive rights. And that includes conservative states like Kansas and Kentucky. So with yesterday's victory on issue one, I think proponents 
of the pro-choice position of reproductive rights, as well as what we've seen in other states is somewhat promising um, for that side. And my guess is that honestly, both sides are likely to just try to keep pushing forward with that messaging keep voters engaged on this issue. We'll probably have a bit of a lull um, in the next few weeks in terms of advertising direct mail and the like. But I would say after Labor Day, it'll be a ton of um, uh, campaigning on the part of both sides when it comes down to this reproductive rights measure in November. Going into November, there's a lot of confidence from activists right now because they saw how Ohioans voted when it came to issue one. So now they're confident in November going into November, and they're hopeful that this abortion rights amendment will be passed in Ohio. So do you think that there's going to be less advertising and less of a push due to all this confidence? Well, I think, as I said, we're kind of in this new world, right, this post-Dobbs uh, context we have now. And I would say neither side should take anything for granted. I think Ohio um, has always been perceived to be relatively evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. Now, in terms of elections, we've been skewing red recently, um, but even solid red states like Kansas and Kentucky um, did uh, support reproductive rights at the statewide initiative when, when those were passed in those two states, respectively. Um, so my suggestion to both campaigns would be don't take anything for granted. And I think because this is such a hot button cultural issue, um, a lot of money will be poured into it. And Ohio will have the only reproductive rights measure on the ballot in November, which means a lot of national attention um, will be paid by national news media and also national money, I would expect, would flow into the state on both sides because both sides are well organized. And that's definitely true that a lot of that attention nationally is going to be in Ohio because even in the political world, even President Biden chimed in on issue one and said, Ohioans spoke loud and clear. So this is definitely going to be something that's going to be a topic of conversation when we talk about the presidential race, too, because reproductive rights continue to be a big issue for voters. So kind of talk about that when we start to see those candidates making their rounds across the country. How often will we see those stops in Ohio? We may see more stops in Ohio than we saw in 2020 as a result of the issue one outcome. And here's why. If you look at the counties in Ohio that Joe Biden won, keeping in mind that Joe Biden lost the state of Ohio in 2020, Donald Trump won by eight points. Joe Biden did, however, win seven counties, and those were largely the big, big urban counties like Lucas and Cuyahoga County. So Biden won seven counties in 2020. But then if you look at what happened with issue one on Tuesday, issue one went down in not just those seven counties that Biden won, but a total of 22 counties. So issue one was really opposed, not just in the big urban counties, which would not really have been that unexpected, 
Um, but also in what we call these collar counties, counties like Wood County, a suburban county here in Northwest Ohio, Medina County in Northeast Ohio, and Delaware County in Central Ohio. These are the counties that backed Trump and went with a majority of their vote to Trump in 2020, but they voted majority no on issue one. And one thing to consider is the possibility that women in the suburbs will sort of hold the key to these kinds of election outcomes. And when reproductive rights are on the ballot, that may change things in a way that, you know, we didn't see in 2020 because that in the, during the 2020 election, um, Dobbs hadn't have been handed down yet. So reproductive rights were still guaranteed nationally. And so I think a lot of attention will be paid to um, women voters and particularly women in the suburbs. Now, why are women in the suburbs so important? Well, it's because the suburbs tend to be where elections are decided. So whether it's for a candidate or whether it's for a statewide issue, we sort of expect that, you know, the big urban areas, those urban counties are likely to vote on the liberal side or on the Democrat side, whereas the rural areas are likely to vote on the conservative side or the Republican side if it's a candidate race. So who decides the election? Those suburban counties. And if they swing left, well, that's going to be a victory for the liberal side, as happened on Tuesday, or for Democrats. And if they swing to the right, that's going to be a victory for the conservative side or for the Republican candidate, as we saw with Donald Trump in both 2016 and 2020. And it's definitely a choice by Republicans to really go hard on opposing reproductive rights because We've seen that nationally, but we even saw it statewide with issue one because Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose even admitted at a fundraising event that this was about abortion. So in terms of that, do you think their strategy is going to change anytime soon because they realize that this is a big issue in the suburbs? It's possible that the Republican position will change but I would say not probable. Why? Because that pro-life position and pro-life supporters are so essential to the base of the Republican Party. Now, what's changed is that um, the question of whether reproductive rights, you know, sort of what protections will there be for reproductive rights has been shifted from the federal level because that was governed by the Roe versus Wade U.S. Supreme Court decision for decades to the state level. And so now reproductive rights are suddenly on the ballot in a way that they haven't been right for decades. And what you have is the Republican Party, a majority of whom supporters are pro-life, out of step with the national electorate, which is majority pro-choice. Now, you know, we just haven't seen how that's going to play out. I do not anticipate a big shift at all. Like that would just be absolutely shocking, as I said, because since sort of the um, certainly since 1980, um, when Ronald Reagan really courted evangelical voters, that coalition of pro-life um, voters within the Republican Party is just has just been essential to its electoral victories. And so one of the things that I think we should be watching or or um, it will be important to watch 
isn't which way Republicans will vote on the statewide on the statewide measure in November or the way Democrats will vote, but how will independents vote? Because like suburban counties, independents, like demographically, they're the ones who decide. And if they swing to the to the right, then, you know, that's really good news for the pro-life position. The Republicans, if they swing to the left, that's really good news for the pro-choice position. So I would keep your demographically, I would keep your eye on the suburbs and I would keep your eye on independent voters. But I don't expect either um, the Democratic or Republican parties to really change their strategy. I think for something as important as um as the pro-life position within the Republican Party, I think it's going to take a lot more than one or even a handful of statewide elections, um, it, particularly on an important cultural issue like that. Change tends to be slow. In the national conversation with regard to the presidential election, while I have you, I want to talk about this as well. We've seen very few Republicans that are, you know, voicing discontent with President, former President Trump, especially after those indictments, because People like Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, they're really the only ones we see speaking out. I know there are a couple others. So why do you think there's still that fear of speaking out about all of these indictments and distancing themselves from the former president? There's really only one route to the Republican nomination, and that's through the Trump supporters. So the Trump supporters are the most passionate and energized and committed portion of the Republican Party base. And no one gets that Republican Party nomination without their support. And that is why, and and to some moderate Republicans, they may feel some sense of frustration um, that these, you know, candidates um, are not willing to take issue with uh, the former president, given the multiple indictments he's faced. Um, but the reality is that it's, uh, you know, it's sort of pure politics. It's simply an electoral strategy. If they turn off the Trump supporters, there's no way to win the Republican nomination. Now, does that mean Trump is, you know, hands down the nominee and no one else has a chance? Possibly if they all stay in the race. And that's where there has been um, some move. I believe it was Republican Senator Mitt Romney wrote an op-ed in which he um, sort of begged the non-Trump Republican candidates in the presidential race to sort of, I don't know whether he meant sort of like get together and decide which of us is going to um, is going to sort of lead this side of the party, but but only if that if those you know other candidates, um, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, um, Ron DeSantis, and and the others. If they were just one candidate, then you'd have a race there, right? Because there is seems to be sort of a ceiling on the support for President Trump. And so if the rest of the Republicans can coalesce around a single candidate, which would really be helped if a number of them dropped out, um, then that's the route um, to having a Republican nominee who's not Donald Trump. But I, I'm not really seeing that happen. One of the reasons I think it's unlikely to happen is that um, in the post-Citizens United world, to mention another landmark Supreme Court case, um, where uh, an individual can give unlimited amounts of money 
not to a candidate organization, but to a political action committee that supports that candidate, all you need is really one big benefactor who's still willing um, to bankroll your campaign to stay in. So it's not like the old days, pre-Citizens United, where when the money dried up, you had to get out of the race. These days, if you've got, um, you know, a millionaire or a billionaire or several of them who are still willing to give you money, you're going to stay in. We've seen this electoral strategy here in Ohio because Secretary of State Frank LaRose had endorsed President Trump, even though President Trump didn't need his endorsement. But Secretary LaRose, he doesn't seem popular really on the right as well either, because I've noticed that there are even some Republicans that aren't really attracted to the Secretary of State for the U.S. Senate race. So. Why do you think that is, that he's not really gaining traction? So I think there's still a battle going on within the Republican Party. And it's between um, those who support the former president and those who either never supported Trump, these never Trumpers, or post-January 6th have have come to take a different view of the former president and don't want to see him reelected. And I think that battle is still playing out. I think it will continue to play out um, through 2024. And um, so, you know, I think within the state of Ohio, I think Republicans are split on which way the party should go. But again, I'll emphasize that the loudest voices within the Republican Party do tend to be those that support the former president. And those Trump supporters are such a loyal part of the base. Um, and one of the big questions is like, what happens if Donald Trump isn't the nominee? Did those Trump supporters still show up if Ron DeSantis is at the top of the ticket in 2024? Or, um, you know, Tim Scott or Nikki Haley or one of the other Republican candidates? That's sort of an open question. Um, because he's, you know, clearly very charismatic and he really has a loyal following that's very much tied up in him as a person rather than the Republican Party as an institution. Well, there was definitely a lot to catch up on, and I know we still have a lot more to talk about as we get closer to November for sure, and definitely in the days and weeks following. So Dr. Melissa Miller, Professor of Political Science at BGSU, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Jaden. Thank you. And that's this week's Community Focus. Have a great week.